Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have come to acknowledge Christ's sin-atoning death on the cross as the once-for-all perfect and acceptable sacrifice for sinners. And so, Lord, we thank you for him. And we thank you for your grace and your mercy to sinners like us. Father, as we open your word, we ask that you would teach us, that you would press your truths and your grace and your love into our hearts, that we would love you with all our heart and soul and mind and body and strength, and that as evidence of your great love within us, we would love one another, even as we love ourselves. Do this for us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you would, open your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12 and find verse 20. Our Easter sermon series is set in chapter 12 of John's Gospel. As I said on Palm Sunday, this is the hinge chapter of John's Gospel. The prior half of John's Gospel focuses on Jesus' identification, who he is. The latter half of John's Gospel focuses on where he's going, his glorification, uh, his death and burial and resurrection. He's moving in that direction now. As I said, the beginning of John's chapter 12 that we're in, Jesus identified himself as the promised king, you'll remember, as he entered the city. That's what we, along with his disciples, learned about him on Palm Sunday. At the end of John chapter 12, Jesus identifies himself as the living gospel, God's commandment to eternal life, saying, believe in me. That will be our focus on Resurrection Sunday. And here in the middle of chapter 12, in verses 20 to 36, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man who will be glorified by being lifted up on a cross to die. So in between Jesus being declared God's King at his triumphal entry and Jesus being glorified as God's King in his resurrection and his ascension, King Jesus will suffer as a servant to save his people from the just wrath of God upon their sins. That's what makes this a Good Friday for all who believe in Jesus. Look at John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. 
And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So some Greeks have come up to Jerusalem to worship God and participate in the Passover feast. Uh, They have no doubt heard words about Jesus, that he is the king of Israel, that he raised Lazarus from the dead. They approach one of his disciples, Philip, and say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. These are important words. These are important words that do two things. The first thing is in this word, see. Throughout John's gospel, people couldn't see Jesus. For 11 chapters, he's been speaking words of truth and performing signs that identify him as the unique Son of God, but they just don't see him. The second thing is in Jesus' response to these Greeks' request to see Jesus. Jesus' answer is, the hour has come. The hour has come. This is a turning point. Up to this point... Jesus has talked about an hour that is to come, and yet, when people want him to do various things or go various places, he regularly responds by saying, my hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. Here, Jesus finally says, my hour has come. Jesus takes this request by these Greeks to see him as a signal from his father to bring about His glory. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. See, Son of Man is Jesus' favorite designation for himself. No one else calls Jesus Son of Man. He does. We'll look at that a little bit more in a moment. 
Then Jesus fires off these three rapid-fire principles having to do with his glory. It's not at all what we would have expected. But it's more important for us to hear them than it is to know whether the Greeks ever got to see Jesus or not. We're not told. So, so when, you, when you have the Greeks come to see Jesus and he's introduced, and instead of the next thing happening is Jesus meeting with the Greeks, but something else is inserted there, you know that that's a point of emphasis. We're supposed to look at that. It's important for us to hear this. Listen to these words that Jesus tells his disciples. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What does that have to do with Jesus being glorified? Well, that is the manner of his glory. Jesus will conquer sin, death, and the devil. He will be glorified in his sin-atoning death, his burial, and his life-giving resurrection, which will bear the fruit of salvation for all who are is, and he will do that on the cross. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What does that have to do with Jesus being glorified? It is the offer of his glory. Jesus offers mercy to sinners who will repent and believe in him by faith. If you hold on to your love for your sinful life in this world, you will lose that life, your life. But if you will hate your sin and reject this world, you will have everlasting life with Jesus in his glory to come. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am and where I am, there, there I will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What does that have to do with bringing Jesus glory? What's well, the promise of his coming glory? Our glory is not in us, is it? But in the one whom we serve. If you would serve and follow Jesus, if you would follow him wherever he goes, you will be an honored servant, honored by the Father. And where is Jesus going? that you must follow him. He is going to the cross. Only he can bear his cross, but he commands his servants to take up our own cross and to follow after him. These statements Jesus makes about glory are not what we might expect. They're filled with irony, juxtaposition, and Reversals, really. But it all comes down to this. Jesus must take what is ours, sin, and give us what is his, righteousness. Jesus became a physical man to conduct this spiritual transaction. And this is the good news that you must believe in order to live and not die. Next, Jesus says, now, now is my soul troubled. Why is his soul troubled? Well, first, let's remember who's talking. Jesus has called himself the Son of Man. That is not a reference to his human nature. Jesus is identifying himself 
as the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel's famous night visions, he sees God destroy the evil beast. And when he saw this in chapter 7, or in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, in fact, let's turn there real quick. Just turn back to Daniel chapter 7. Locate verse 13. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one, which shall not be destroyed." See, Jesus is that Son of Man who, to whom God, who is the Ancient of Days, will give glory and an everlasting kingdom that he will then share with his people. Jesus' soul is troubled because there's something he must do before he goes to the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom. First, Jesus must go to the cross. Then in, in Jesus' It's, it's like he reasons out loud in front of his disciples as to why this must be. Look at verse 27 back in, in John chapter 12. He says out loud, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Remember how in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there is a way to do your will without becoming sin, which you hate and abhor, and without being separated from you, I would do that, Jesus prays. But Father, not my will, but your will. That's what Jesus is explaining here. Jesus says, my hour has come. Shall I let my hour pass? Shall I be a grain of wheat that does not fall to the earth and does not die and remain alone? Who is the kingdom that Jesus is meant to receive? It's us. We are the fruit of his gospel and his kingdom of servants. We are the evidence of his glory whom the Father will honor when Jesus has accomplished his Father's will. This is my Father's will for me. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And God the Father answers Jesus from heaven saying, I have glorified my name when I promised the hope of my Son, and I will glorify my name again when I receive back my Son into my presence, my victorious Son. Not only his disciples, but the crowd heard the voice of God. And they did not understand it. So Jesus explains it in verses 31 to 33. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus will be lifted up. 
from the earth on a cross. And there he will die a sacrificial death in our place. There he will bear our guilt and our shame. There he will be pierced through for our transgressions and for our iniquities. There the Lord will lay upon him the iniquity of us all. This isn't the first time that Jesus has said he must be lifted up in John's gospel. In John chapter 3, in verses 13 to 15, turn there, turn back just a few pages to John chapter 3. Find verse 13, Jesus, Jesus said this to Nicodemus. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. When did Moses lift up a serpent in the wilderness, and what does that have to do with Jesus on a cross? Well, in Numbers chapter 21, after the Exodus, the people of Israel cursed God and Moses for bringing them into the wilderness. So God judged them by sending fiery serpents among them. And they bit them and they died. That was their cursed judgment. In Numbers chapter seven, verse, or 21, verse 7, Moses writes, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. In the same way, Jesus is to be lifted up and all who see him will live. But why does Jesus compare himself, when he's lifted up, to a serpent? Those two things just don't seem to go together. Well, in Numbers chapter 21, God judged the people's sin with fiery serpents because the serpent is the symbol of the curse. The judgment. That symbolism is established in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, where the Lord God said to the serpent... Because you have done this, cursed are you. So Satan, that serpent of old, is the one cursed by God. In what way is Jesus on the cross like the bronze serpent on the pole? On the cross, Jesus became the cursed one for us. The sinless one became the curse for our sin. It is rare in Scripture for Jesus to let us know what is going on inside of himself. He confides, my soul is distressed because I must become the one my Father curses. In that moment, God the Father, I think, looks a little bit like Abraham. Holding the knife above his beloved son Isaac, the chosen sacrifice. But there was relief for Isaac. God himself would provide the sacrifice in Isaac's place. There is not the same kind of relief 
for God's beloved son. Because he is the substitute. Jesus, the only innocent one, became the cursed one in our place. He paid the wages of our sin, which is death, so that we might be forgiven our sin and have life. By our sin, we were destined for eternity in hell. But on the cross, Jesus took what was ours, sin, and gave us what was his, righteousness. The righteousness without which we can never see God. And all of this comes to us by faith. It would seem enough for us to have our sins atoned for on the cross. It's a lot. It would seem enough. But is it? Every believer in Christ would say, Jesus has paid for my sins on the cross. But is that all he did for you on the cross? Did you need him to do anything else for you while he was hanging there upon the cross in your place? He says about this hour that he's got in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Who is the ruler of this world? Satan. And who is Jesus? He is the Son of Man, the coming judge. And his judgment is to cast out Satan. What does Jesus say? His purpose is for this hour, right here, that we just read? What does Jesus believe that the Father has sent him to do upon the cross? He does not say, to forgive your sins, although he will accomplish the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus is going to the cross to crush the head of the serpent. On a good Friday, Jesus is going to fulfill God's gospel promise from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The seed of the woman shall crush the serpent's head though the serpent shall crush his heel. The Son of Man is bringing God's promised judgment upon Satan, the deceiver. Now, why should that matter to you? As long as our sins are forgiven, as long as Jesus has victory over sin and death, why does it matter that he defeats Satan, dealing him the mortal blow on the cross? Well, remember Paul's explanation of our sinful condition in Ephesians chapter 2. That we were not only dead in our trespasses, but we walked with the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. Your sins are not your only problem. Your sins are the terrible symptom of the reality that you are in bondage to Satan. Not only are you dead in your trespasses and sins, but your life is in the grip of the evil one. That's why God's gospel promise in Genesis chapter, 5, chapter 3, verse 15, is to crush Satan. 
That's why Jesus sees himself as the Son of Man bringing God's judgment upon Satan and as the fulfillment of the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. That's why we say that Jesus has defeated our enemies of sin, death, and the devil. He has not only washed us clean from sin, he has fought for us. And at the greatest price of his own life, he has defeated our enemies so that we might live without fear of death. Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan was the strong man, but Jesus is the stronger man who has bound the strong man and is plundering his household of souls, transferring sinners from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his love and light. John is, is weaving together here. Jesus is the king. Jesus as the son of man. Jesus as the seed of the woman and the serpent crusher. And Jesus, the suffering servant, all woven together, all because a few Greeks wished to see Jesus. Do you wish to see Jesus? Then you must first see your sin. You must see that your life has been lived to the glory of your sinful rebellion against Christ and your self-serving walk with Satan. You can see these things now because Jesus has been lifted up and is right now drawing all people to himself. Do not love your sin and lose your life in darkness. Come to Jesus and see his kingdom of light. If you see Jesus now, Come to him and bow down to the king of mercy and grace. If you see Jesus now as God's servant who has suffered the penalty for your sin in your place on the cross, then trust him as the only acceptable sacrifice who has secured God's forgiveness and honor. If you see Jesus now as the son of man who is coming to judge the world, walk in his light and the darkness of hell will not overtake you. Love him fully as he has loved you and become sons of light. Heavenly Father, thank you that what your son has accomplished is a gift to us if we would but believe. Shine the light this evening in our hearts. Shine the light this evening in our minds. Jesus has been lifted up. Father, by your Spirit, draw men to him. Draw sinners to him. Men and women, boys and girls, to come into the light and become sons of light, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.